Hello, I'm Wanda Boker, and this is Save the World Every Day, a podcast dedicated to choices we make every day to address the big problems that feel out of our control, but keep us up late at night anyway. The anthropologist Margaret Mead famously said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Those words are my motivation, and I'll be speaking with people who inspire and motivate and who we all can learn from. If you like what you hear, please add Save the World Every Day to your favorite RSS feed, like Spotify, Stitcher, or iTunes, and check out the sister blog by the same name at savetheworldeveryday.com. Today, I am thrilled to be able to talk with Tommy and Michelle Shearman, owners of Third Way Farm here in Harford County, Maryland. Third Way Farm uses environmentally sustainable organic farming methods, rejecting all conventional pesticides such as glyphosate, atrazine, and corpyrifus. Banning the use of corpyrifus has been debated in Annapolis for years, and this year, a bill to prohibit the use of the pesticide throughout all of Maryland was passed in the Senate with amendments, and is now in the House for consideration. This is big news for Maryland consumers, and of course, for Maryland farmers. Third Way Farm is in a perfect position to share with other Maryland farmers how to thrive as a family farm without depending on these conventional pesticides. Tommy and Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us, Wanda. Thank you. So why don't you start off by telling us why you decided to start Third Way Farm and why you decided to farm without pesticides? Sure. The, the vision of Third Way Farm started about uh, seven years ago, and it actually began when I was on a journey in seminary. And so I was studying theology and uh, on the path to vocational ministry. And in, in my time studying theology, I became really inspired and impassioned for uh, this intersection of ecology and theology, which a number of um, students and teachers were doing work on uh, at Boston University where I was studying. And the issues like climate change and the multifaceted issues that are all connected to that, particularly the problem of our food system and the way that it's destroying our land and our water and our health in a lot of ways, became extremely important to me. And I could no longer just see myself going to be a quote-unquote minister and work in a church. Um, I really wanted to, to do something as a ministry that would allow me to participate in trying to craft and create uh, a better world. And these were the issues that had really become most important to me. And I uh, had for a long time been really wanting to work particularly with young people, college-age people, because it was in my college years that I felt that I really found myself, and that was where I um, experienced the most formation as a person. And so I started imagining, um, particularly when I was on a uh, sustainable farming internship for my degree in Malaysia, in the jungle, I, I, there I was writing and, and reading a lot of ecological theology and practicing sustainable farming, and the whole vision of Third Way Farm kind of came to be. And I felt that the practical thing I could do to address these big, really complex, hard to wrap my head around issues was food. Food seemed to be one thing that would allow me to connect with and be able to relate to anybody because we all need food. Absolutely. And so, so I felt that 
a small sustainable farm would be a great place to also work with young people. And so I imagined uh, you know, a small sustainable farm doing this practical work to, to try to model a better world of farming and agriculture and community and in the process be able to invite young people to come and intern and work on our farm and kind of find themselves and discover who they were and how they might be able to go on and impact the world in ways too. And this is kind of how I brought these two very different worlds together and, and thus Third Way Farm kind of came to be after uh, I, I did spend about a year and a half study or um, working as a college campus minister and that's how my wife Michelle and I met and um, after that we started the farm I started the farm and Michelle and I got together later uh, so maybe so, I'll let you jump yeah, in yeah <laughs> I come to farming through a relationship so yeah <laughs> it was kind of a package deal with Tommy and something I ended up falling in love with kind of unexpectedly so because I had never thought that I would end up on a farm so. right so. well what the two of you have accomplished is quite extraordinary I'm I'm a bit older than you and I have to say that probably since I was your age at least in the late late 80s I have heard how difficult it is for American farmers I I'm old enough to remember Farm Aid and those wonderful concerts, and they were very inspirational uh, to uh, the the idealists in my generation. And it just seems like it's become harder and harder and harder to be a family farm in the United States, to be a sustainable family farm that doesn't use pesticides. It seems almost an impossible feat. So what have been the challenges, uh, and why is it worth it? Yeah, so... I, there's a, a lot of complex issues to talk about in, in that. Um, I think for me, as I was learning about the problems and, and thus setting myself up to want to go and do something about it, um, I, I began to, to try and look at the root causes of kind of what has gotten us to where we are today. And uh, to me, in a lot of ways, it seems that the progression of the kind of the industrial farming revolution that happened throughout the 1900s, that whole process is, is what's really driven us to the point uh, or kind of to the brink of, of destruction where we are now because a famous, a famous quote that a lot of people look to and remember, um, the uh, Secretary of Agriculture back in the, I think it was the 50s, Earl Butts famously said that his, the policy of the Department of Agriculture would be get big or get out. And so farms have been continually pushed and pushed to um, get bigger and produce more. Um, and that type of thinking has continued to lead to short-term band-aid solutions to the problems that we face with uh, soil loss and um, the need for increased yield. And so farmers have been trying to, well, I should say farmers and all of the chemical companies and uh -huh. uh, chemical engineers that are all working together on this have continued to look to toxic chemicals, a lot of them having had their origination in some of the bombs and things used in World War II yeah. um, and the Vietnam War as well. And so, you know, it became, well, how can we solve this problem as quickly as possible? And it became spraying more and more and stronger and stronger chemicals. Um, and that became more important as farmers needed to try and cover hundreds of thousands of acres that they were trying to farm with one or two people. That's a lot of the genesis of kind of getting us to a place where we are now. 
and why sustainable farming now is so important to try and go back and try to counteract a lot of that progression to get big and to be dependent on, on chemicals. We're in a unique situation in the United States. While industrial farming exists and, and has threatened health in the world, a lot of countries have more regulations than we do. And individual farmers, for example, I moved here from France where I lived for about six years, and they're protected by governmental regulations, so they are still they still exist. Mm-hmm. You're at a particular you have a particular challenge as a small farm in Maryland, and you've as far as I'm concerned you've made it. I love going to your farm. It's beautiful. It's uh, happy, healthy farmers, and you've got beautiful produce, and the community loves you. And I just was wondering if you could talk about individual challenges that you had starting out and how you overcame them. I guess, like, a specific thing would be weeds, mm-hmm. you know. We ha- we do, and especially in the summer, we pick a lot of weeds by hand, and we spend a lot of time picking weeds. So you can see how other farms would want to just spray them. But it's worth it to us because we don't want people eating those those chemicals, but also knowing that we spent the time and the labor, like, picking everything for the health of other people and for our families. So that would be one specific thing. Yeah, and I think to dovetail off of that, um, this this kind of gets back a little bit to the the get big or get out idea because it's difficult to pay a fair wage to people to come and work on a farm because the profit uh, of a farm is often very low. It's in America, we, we have developed a culture that expects food to be dirt cheap. On average, Americans spend only about 4 or 5% of their income on food. Whereas That's in Europe, problem. maybe you can say in, in France yeah. in particular, I've read that it's more common to spend something like 20% of mm-hmm. your income on food. So we are working with a very limited budget, but we have decided as a farm that we would rather find ways to employ people and give people a chance to get connected and find a meaningful way of life and vocation via farming. And so we would rather uh, have people out there doing this work than buying more expensive machinery and chemicals to do it instead. And so to deal with the weed issue, yeah, we do have a a lot of hands out there picking weeds at times and hoeing. But we have been in the process for a little over a year now of actually transitioning all of our vegetable production to no-till. And I would say that's one of the most important things that we could talk about maybe in this you know, program is that uh, it's, it's very unheard of still at this point for any vegetable production to be no-till because it's very difficult to transition from one crop to another without getting a tiller in there and turning it all up and getting all of the, the old crop residue and weeds out of there. Um, but every time we, we do that, every time we till the soil, we are, one, destroying all of the biological life that really makes the plants grow. And we are uh, inviting all of the latent seeds, what we call the, the seed bank, the weed seed bank in the soil, uh, to germinate again. And so we make the weed problem worse and we make the fertility and the, the biological life of the soil worse every time we till. Uh, but it's just been a given that farmers right. think we have to do this. How else are we going to prepare the soil for the crop? Um, but we are part of a, a small but very quickly uh, growing movement across the world now of farmers that are really dedicated to doing no-till vegetable production. 
And this is really the key thing that's going to help us decrease our need to, to weed all the time. Because weeding is the thing that right. no, no farmer wants to do it, right? <laughs> we, we don't like doing it, and it's, a, it's like the most unprofitable thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like we need to be planting and harvesting because weeding is not going to earn us any income. Right. <laughs> and so some of the practices we're doing, which I don't, probably don't have time to get into now, um, particularly our... our helping eliminate weeds in the soil by using tarps, for instance. We will lay out a black tarp over the soil uh, when we're not using it to quote-unquote solarize it and kind of kill off the vegetation that's there. Um, but And then when we pull it back in about three or four weeks, now we have a, a bed that we can either replant and often it has a mulch already in place because of all the vegetation that's died back. Um, and so by not going in and tilling it and making all those weed seeds germinate again, uh, over time we, will, we are, are already in one year seeing much less weed pressure and it's only going to get better. Now I've heard that industrial farms have also started using no-till practices to grow grains. Is that the same thing? That's a good question because it actually is different. Because when you are applying those types of no-till practices on a large monoculture grain production, it actually begins to necessitate the need for more and more pesticides because those grain producing farms have always been historically dependent upon tillage to get rid of all their, their weeds and issues throughout the, the season. And so as they started being told, oh, hey, we need to stop eroding all the soil or having a soil loss issue, well, they figured out how to drill the, the grain into the soil and be able to not have to till it, but the weeds were still a problem. And so they started developing more and more intense pesticides to deal with those weeds. So that is different than what we're doing because we are not using any of those toxic chemicals on our production and our no-till strategies are really meant to, yes, save the soil in the same principle, but then we, because of our approach with sustainable farming, we are, are using other methods to deal with the weeds. And we can do that on a two-acre scale rather than uh, these grain farmers who are trying to do it on a 50,000-acre scale. Um, so that's the difference. With it. And the grains that they're producing on a 50,000-acre scale... That's not for human consumption. We don't, eat, we don't eat that much grain. Right. Um, that's for livestock. And therein lies, uh, I think, one of the biggest conundrums of our whole farming system at this point. And this is beyond America. This is now a global system that is producing an absolutely exorbitant amount of grain. And it's 80% of it goes to feed livestock. That's all the corn and soy in particular that you see grown in such massive fields throughout our country and abroad. And so even if some of those farmers are using these no-till practices we're talking about, that is, I mean, it's better in one sense that they're not tilling the soil, but they are still using all of the pesticides and even more so in some, some cases. And so the, for me, this is where I, I'd spend a lot of time trying to ask the question, well, well, why are we growing so much grain? And, oh, well, it's to feed the livestock. Well, do, do livestock really need to eat all of this grain? You know, do they do that in nature? And is that how, how they had survived to begin with? Um, and the answer is no. And, so the, and then the connected question to all this, right, is do we need to eat that much meat? Right, <laughs> exactly. We in America, right, eat so much more meat than most any other country in the world. 
all these questions kind of come together and make it very confusing. I would say that we have come to approach our farm uh, as an ecosystem, right? So we're not just growing vegetables, we're not just raising chickens, we're not just raising pigs and sheep. We're doing all of those things because we want our, our food system to mimic nature and thus all of these different types of living systems need to be interconnected and work together. One serves the other. Right. So our uh, scraps and excess vegetable production helps feed our chickens and our pigs. The manure that we get from the, the chickens in particular at times is spread on the, the field to help grow the next set of vegetables. And so we are able to raise livestock um, and not have to be so dependent on the grain. We are starting to transition some of our fields now into trying to grow forage crops. These are things like turnips and kale and even some other small grains that we wouldn't uh, need to use any pesticides for. And so we're starting to figure out how to grow our own food for our livestock and not be so dependent on grain production, which, as we said, is then dependent on the pesticides. And the other big key to this, right, is beef is often looked at as kind of the biggest culprit, right, of the problem because globally we raise so many cows and people are wanting to eat more and more beef, especially developing countries, right, or getting a more uh, a taste for more beef. And that's contributing to all the deforestation in the Amazon and you name it. Like all these problems begin to, to sink up. But cows, just like our sheep, they are our ruminants. And a ruminant is an animal that has four stomachs. That's amazing, right? Because we only have one stomach. Therefore, these animals are designed by God to eat grass and to process and get nutrition from grass. That makes them very unique. And so when they eat grain, cows actually get sick. They're actually continuously having upset stomachs. And that's why they produce so much gas, right. right? Which a lot of people look at and say, look at all these big cow farms. You know, they're producing all this methane, a very potent greenhouse gas, and that contributes to climate change. Well, that's true, but they wouldn't be producing all of that methane gas if they weren't eating so much grain. Oh, uh, that's an excellent <laughs> point because I eat meat and every once in a while and I just make sure that it's always organic grass fed and it tastes so much better. As soon as you start, you'll be happy that you did because yeah. it just tastes so much better and it's better for you and that makes me feel so good that the, the cows are actually healthier too mm-hmm. because they're, they're eating grass. Yeah, so that's someday we hope to maybe uh, raise some cattle like that. But our, our sheep are our, kind of our best example. We, we feed them no grain, and they live a really great, healthy life living off of grass because that's what they're meant for. And so this is really, I think, the direction that livestock farming needs to go. Smaller scale, grass-fed, rotationally grazed, and it is healthier for the land, the animal, and us. For our listeners, not tilling the soil means that you have healthier soil and you'll have less weeds eventually in your soil. The big benefit of that is that your food doesn't have these pesticides that are so widely used across the country. I want to name three of them because I hope people look out and ask farmers when they're at their farms if they use them, glyphosate, atrazine, and chlorpyrifos. Here in Maryland, we may be at a turning point moment because chlorpyrifos may be banned across the state. This is a pesticide that 
as more scientific studies come out, it becomes more and more clear that it's harmful to human health, specifically harmful to the brain development of babies and young children. If we can get messages out there that it's possible to farm economically, smartly, without these pesticides, I just feel like it's in everybody's interest. There are no losers here. The, the information that you're sharing to other farmers that it's possible and successful for you is just really helpful. Now, I wrote about my experience with your CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and I really enjoyed the experience of visiting your farm every week. It was just so wonderful to see it, and the idea of picking up a big basket of fresh organic produce to bring home was wonderful. So I want you to talk about your CSA, how it works. Yeah, well, this year, Michelle's going to be kind of taking over the CSA, and um, we're making some big changes about how we do it, um, focused one in particular on trying to give everyone a, a, a complete sense of choice over what you pick each week rather than just having us pick what's in it. Uh, we, can, we can still do both, but I want Michelle to, to kind of talk a little bit about that. And we're also building a new building um, that's going to make the CSA experience hopefully a lot better. Yeah, we're really excited this year to kind of change the setup around a little bit where it must be like you're going to a farmer's market. We've got a barn, beautiful barn being built right now. The two choices for the CSA this year will be your choice where you get to pick exactly what you want. We'd say like eight to 10, pick eight to 10 vegetables of your choice. Or you could do the farmer's choice, which would be we pick what items you would receive that week. Either way, it would all be set out like a market, and you just come and uh, pick up your veggies and what you'd like that week. And we usually put out a recipe because we know we have some vegetables that aren't so familiar to some folks. So uh, we like to give some direction with vegetables. And we're going to put out homemade breads and um, our fiber products because we have sheep. So we um, Wonderful. have locally milled yarn that we'll be putting out and hopefully oh i can't wait i'm a knitter so that that's very good news to me yeah i'm hoping to um do some natural dyeing with the yarns too because i grew some flowers that i might be able to Uh uh-huh dye the yarns with neat we're continuing to try to offer more options so as michelle said we we have these two farmer's choice and your choice Um, The farmer's choice being the traditional CSA method where we kind of put in the things that we have the most of and the things we need to find a home for. Um, And that's a little bit cheaper option. So that's kind of a benefit if you go that route. But if you really want to be able to pick and and do it all yourself, that's totally your choice as well. But then the other thing I just wanted to clarify too is that, yeah, the the full share uh, is eight to ten vegetables. And that's really great for like a family of four or even up to six However, a lot of people think that that might be a little too much for them, especially if like a, a couple maybe of just two people or even a, a single person. And so we have the small share as well. And so that's a much more is a appropriate size for certain families. And that's really only four, four or five vegetables uh, per week. So that's a little bit more manageable for people that are maybe trying to get their feet wet and you know maybe still trying to figure out what to do with everything in the kitchen. Right. And when, then, does it, uh, when does it start? It's not all year long. It's seasonal. May 15th to November 29th. Yes, basically through Thanksgiving. Okay. 
but but we do offer CSA all year long. So we are still right now at this time doing our winter CSA. Um, but because the availability of products is more limited in the winter, we don't continue to offer like the full baskets just because we don't necessarily have that wide of an array of things to offer all the time. And so the winter CSA is very simple, whereas as long as you're on our email list and you can ask to be on at any time, we're just sending out a, a weekly email um, with a list of all the different things we have, and you can place an order um, saying, I want a bag of spinach and a bunch of carrots and a dozen eggs, and then right. you come and pick that up. That, that's one really important thing about us as a farm is that we have really geared and designed ourselves to be uh, a, a four-season farm. We have uh, vegetables available f- 52 weeks a year, pork and eggs um, and all of our wool products and in the future, we will be having uh, more lamb as well from our sheep. And all of those things are really available all the time. We've found a way to be able to keep growing these things even through the winter, which is really helpful for everyone. So for listeners who would like to sign up for the CSA or get more information about it, where do they go? They could go to our website. We've got all the detailed information. It's thirdwayfarm.com. But also, if you wanted to directly email us, it's thirdwavefarm at gmail.com. Now, I like to cook at home, but I feel like sometimes people feel intimidated about the idea of buying fresh produce and making their meals from scratch. Have you always cooked at home? Do you have any tips for people that might feel like it's a really big thing to, to try to do this? What are your thoughts I guess I would say, since Tommy's a couple of years older than me, and when we met, I was just coming out of college, and that's the time that you start cooking for yourself. So I was really lucky that I graduated college and moved here and with Tommy on the farm, and I had this plethora of veggies to cook with and experiment with. But I see that like not everybody has that opportunity. I guess my advice would be, Step out of your comfort zone, step into your kitchen, and go to your markets and talk to the to the vendors at your markets because likely they'll have recipes and things they really like to do with certain vegetables and fruits. And I think that grocery stores have made it more fearful to cook on your own and made you feel a little more intimidated because they've got canned goods and prepackaged this and that and microwavable items that you can cook in five minutes but there's so much to be said about a home-cooked meal from somebody you know who grew it and how you knew how it was raised yeah so i'd say um i think this is a really important topic and i'm so glad that you wanted to talk about uh cooking the famous farmer that a lot of farmers like myself follow and look up to joel salatin he talks a lot about this issue and you know he he recognizes that most people are, are really scared of the kitchen and, and even more so maybe uh, look at time as perhaps the biggest roadblock to being in the kitchen because uh, we obviously live in a very fast-paced and um, convenience-directed society. And so everyone probably gets to a point where they just feel that, well, I don't cook and I'm not going to learn how to cook because well, I don't have time and I got to get my kids to soccer practice and to, to band and X, Y, Z and the other thing. Right. And no one thinks that there's any time. So my, my biggest encouragement uh, from Michelle and I's standpoint is we are farmers and thus we work probably as hard or harder than most people. And we have very limited time um, to potentially cook, but we cook Almost every single day, we eat our own vegetables, eggs, and pork seven days a week. 
our meals are basically 80 to 90 percent probably of things that we have grown on our own farm and so if we as as farmers uh, with this crazy schedule that we live have been able to do it i, I hope that can be some encouragement to you all um that it is it is certainly possible to make cooking uh, a fun and exciting and a vibrant part of your your weekly routine and i can say yeah you, you know as a guy i know a lot of guys uh, maybe think that cooking's not for them or they never really had a chance to learn because mom always cooked and, uh-huh. you know, whatever, grandma always cooked, whatever. Um, and and I, I never ate vegetables growing up. I had not a single interest except, like, carrots. I was an awful, <laughs> awful eater when I was a teenager. My stepmom still jokes about it with me because now I eat absolutely anything and she just can't believe it. It's still hard for her to wrap her head around and I'd say, yeah, I, for me, it was really important that if I was going to do this farm and I was really going to completely immerse myself in the, the land that I was called to care for and love, that I, I wanted to be able to live as much degree as I can from that land. Mm-hmm. And so I took it upon myself to really learn and to fall in love with all of the amazing diversity of food that we grow and uh, I can tell you how to cook absolutely any vegetable and herb that we grow and probably 10 different ways to do it now because I love it. I, I really enjoy cooking and it makes your experience of food so much more positive and enjoyable because you have a much deeper connection with the it. A relationship. Yeah. yeah. And it you know? tastes so much better. Mm-hmm. I tell people that the more you love food, the better of a cook you'll be mm-hmm. because Food just tastes better when it's real, when it's yeah. fresh, when it's not out, or out of a can or out of a box. You know, I lived overseas for 20 years, and I had the privilege of living in countries with incredible cultures of cuisine, where food was part of who they were mm-hmm. as a culture, yeah. whether it was Russia or Kazakhstan or France. I learned about who I was sharing my world with by the food that they ate. And when I came to the United States after back after 20 years, it was so disappointing because nothing tasted good. I'd go to a restaurant and I'm thinking, what is wrong? And it's because we've gotten used to eating out of a can. So I think it's, 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 it's a really positive optimistic, encouraging thing Mm -hmm. to cook at home with real ingredients. And it just makes you happier. It makes you healthier and happier. And it saves money. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, truly. Just back to the CSA on that point too. We really value the CSA because it's an opportunity to have the the cheapest option to get access to all this local food that you can then cook with at home. Um, It really is cheaper than going to the grocery store when you add up the numbers. So... Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. It's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tommy and Michelle from Third Way Farms in Harford County, Maryland. I personally cannot wait to sign up for the CSA again this year. And I think that what you've talked about today is really important for everyone, but especially for farmers. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that a lot of farmers listen to this program. Thank Thanks you so much. much for your support for having us. So that wraps up our program today. Thanks so much for listening. Again, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. We're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitchers, and iTunes. And follow our blog at savetheworldeveryday.com. Until next time.